You see, in this world, there's two kinds of people, my friend. Those with loaded guns, and those who dig. You dig. This is the Six Gun Justice Podcast with wordslingers Paul Bishop and Richard Brosh. Howdy. It's good to have you join us for another action-packed episode of the Six Gun Justice Podcast, where we celebrate the blazing six-gun action of the Western genre in books, movies, TV, and any other media at home on the range. I'm Richard Prosh, and riding side saddle next to me is my co-host, Paul Bishop. Howdy, Paul. How are you? Well, I'd be a lot better if I could get these chaps on the right way so I could straddle this cayuse properly instead of this riding side saddle nonsense. <laughs> I can tell it's going to be another one of those episodes, huh? You say that it's a bad thing, but let's move on. What owl hoot is our posse going after today? Today, our Six-Gun Justice podcast goes international to trek through the dangerous territory of spaghetti westerns and other European cowboy sagas. Tell me, Rich, if you go into the bathroom as an American, what are you when you're in the bathroom? I have no idea what you're talking about. (laughs) That's your cue to play straight man. Okay. I don't know. If you go into the bathroom as an American, what are you when you are in the bathroom? European. Okay. Stop. Just stop. (laughs) What do you have for us before we get to our feature besides very bad puns? Our last episode on how the West was fun generated some fan mail from listeners who enjoyed the show but wanted to tell us about their favorite funny Westerns that we didn't mention. I bet one of the first ones was Maverick. You're right, and it wasn't an oversight on our part, as we purposely didn't mention it because all things Maverick are going to be featured in our next full-length episode. What other funny westerns did our listeners mention? After hearing our discussion of the 1965 film Cat Baloo, during which we mentioned the producer's first choices for the leads in the film had been Anne Margaret and Kirk Douglas, who both declined, one listener sent me a photo of the poster for the 1979 film The Villain in which Anne Margaret and Kirk Douglas did starring together. I've never heard of that. I'm not surprised. It appears Margaret and Douglas should have jumped at the chance to do Cat Baloo, which would go on to be highly praised and win an Oscar for Lee Marvin, because the villain, by all accounts, was an exercise in beating a dead horse. Let me quote from one of the major newspaper reviews. The sorriest collection of jokes in recent memory put together by a group who probably wouldn't make the grade in the Mel Brooks School of Infantile Humor. Ouch. Oh, it gets worse. How about this review from the New York Times? A hopelessly stupid Western spoof about a hopelessly stupid gunfighter who learns his bad guy tactics from studying a pulp novel and who invariably ends up being outsmarted by his horse. Or this review from the Los Angeles Times. The attitude of the entire movie is like one condescending dirty joke. Who else was in this turkey? The villain, or Cactus Jack as it was alternately known, also starred Arnold Schwarzenegger, Paul Lind, Foster Brooks, Strother Martin, Ruth Buzzy, Jack Elam, and Mel Tillis, and it was directed by none other than Hal Needham. Hal Needham? An unfortunate truth. 
It's certainly not going to be on my must-see list, but I have to say I'm curious. <laughs> <laughs> it's one of those, it can't be that bad, but then it is. I'm not sure the villain would even have qualified for our How the West Was Fun episode, because apparently it's not even close to being funny. That's a good point. A funnier story related to Cat Palou, Six-Gun Justice Deputy Peter Ackerman told me his dad, Harry Ackerman, was the executive producer of the Cat Ballou TV pilot starring Leslie Ann Warren and Jack Elam in the Jane Fonda and Lee Marvin roles. On the night the show was to be aired, Peter had a friend named Eddie over to watch it with him. Peter remembers his mom cooked a nice spaghetti dinner before everyone sat down in front of the television to watch his dad's new show. Peter was even wearing the souvenir cowboy hat his dad had given him with the program's name printed across the front. Peter and Eddie sat down about two feet from the TV as they awaited the start of the show. Suddenly, Eddie retched, then he heaved, and then he grabbed Peter's brand new cowboy hat and blew his supper into it. Peter's mom cleaned Eddie up and called his parents to come take him home, and Peter's hat was given a decent burial. But in the midst of all the excitement, everybody missed the show. However, Peter went on to say that from what he understands, this series of events was funnier and more exciting than the Cat Palou pilot episode itself, which was tossed on the network's trash heap faster than Peter's hat hit the garbage pail. <laughs> now that definitely qualifies as a funny Western story. Did listeners have any better candidates for humorous Westerns we missed? Uh, somebody gave a shout out to the best little whorehouse in Texas. Really? Somebody considers a musical set in the late 1970s about the attempt to close down a brothel in Texas by a crusading reporter a Western? As far as I'm concerned, it's like classing the musical Oklahoma as a Western. It is and it isn't. But neither the best little whorehouse in Texas or Oklahoma are going to get any traction with me. Please tell me there's at least one better suggestion. There were several votes cast for the Cheyenne Social Club. Okay, I hadn't even thought about that. The only dirty movie Jimmy Stewart ever made. <laughs> I didn't consider it either. I've heard of it, but it's never been high on my viewing queue because, until recently, I've never been a fan of either of the film's stars, Jimmy Stewart and Henry Fonda. Really? I think you could get your deputy badge revoked for not liking Jimmy Stewart. Then it's lucky I've revised my opinion. Okay, so what made you reevaluate? Rich, doing this podcast has widened my Western horizons. In the past month, I watched Stewart in The Man from Laramie, Winchester 73, and The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. Frankly, his performance in those films blew me away. Those are some great films. Then I caught up with Stewart and Fonda together in Fire Creek, in which they both choose scenery like a starving man at a buffet. However, as a variation on High Noon, I thought the film was effective, and Stuart and Fonda, who I understand were good friends off-screen, are great together. I also watched Fonda in some early episodes of his TV series The Deputy, and it's obvious he was too good of an actor to be confined to the small screen. Fonda also played against type in one of the most iconic films we're about to be talking about today, Once Upon a Time in the West. And that makes for a great segue into our feature. So let's saddle up and make tracks for the strange and stylized world of Spaghetti Westerns. So 
so cool, but I miss the cattle. Happy? <laughs> you bet. For the average movie fan, the term Spaghetti Western conjures up little more than Clint Eastwood's Dollars Trilogy. A fistful of dollars for a few dollars more, and the good, the bad, and the ugly. Also known as the Man With No Name Trilogy or the Blood Money Trilogy, these were not the first Spaghetti Westerns, but they are certainly the best known, and frankly, the most representative examples of the genre. More knowledgeable fans may point to the film Once Upon a Time in the West, which you mentioned earlier, as a spaghetti western to end all spaghetti westerns. But like those who haven't explored the genre beyond Sergio Leone's Dollars trilogy, they are discounting the importance, the entertainment value, and the lasting impact of the hundreds of other spaghetti westerns of varying quality that exploded across the landscape of filmmaking in the 60s and 70s. If you're new to the spaghetti western genre, the sheer number of films can be confusing. I know it was for me when I was younger. It's difficult to pick a point to jump in, and since the quality of the films varies so widely, it's hard to know the good from the bad and how to avoid the really ugly. And I wasn't always successful with that either, Paul. But fear not, we're here to help, aren't we? Neither of us are spaghetti western experts, but in researching this episode, we've learned enough to be able to pass along the basics of Spaghetti Westerns 101. Spaghetti Westerns first became a thing in the early 60s. Its popularity ran for over a decade until it took its last few agonizingly slow breaths at the end of a noose in the late 1970s. And if you know anything at all about Spaghetti Westerns, if you know those noose-strangled death rows involved lots of lingering close-ups of bulging eyes, snot-streaming noses, and swollen tongues, a filming technique the Spaghetti Western took to the extreme and beyond. Noose strangled death throws. How long did you work to come up with that bit of purple prose? I'm only letting folks know what they're getting into. Most films in the genre were directed and produced by Italians, giving rise to the moniker Spaghetti Westerns, even though the films were often made in collaboration with other European countries besides Italy, especially Spain and Germany. The moniker was coined by foreign movie critics as a derogatory term because the films were considered criminally inferior when compared to American westerns. Even the best of the films were low-budget productions, but most were produced on minuscule budgets to rake in as much commercial profit as possible. The low budgets, however, didn't hinder several films in the genre, rising to innovative and artistic levels. But even in Europe, the derogatory lashback from critics killed any appreciation of their technical achievements, their cutting-edge filmatic stylings, or recognitions of their propulsive action and storytelling. As the 80s matured, grudging respect had to be extended due to the commercial success, which was literally keeping the Italian movie studios in business. Slowly, prejudicial disdain for spaghetti westerns began to go into hiding, revealing itself only in the ignorant snobbery of those who considered themselves filmatic literati, which is a fancy term for supercilious fools. Even though the spaghetti western label was no longer being used disparagingly, Italians began to refer to the films as western all all'Italia, literally westerns Italian style. In Japan, they became macaroni westerns, and in Germany, the term Italo-Western was liberally applied. No matter. The Spaghetti Western, by any other name, was still a Spaghetti Western, and began to find its own cult of ever-growing loyal fans. As we mentioned earlier, 
The birth of the genre is often attributed to the enormous success of Sergio Leone's A Fistful of Dollars, which was released in 1964. However, while Leone may have redefined the genre, there had already been a fistful of westerns made in Italy before he came on the scene. Italy was not even the first European country to make westerns in the 60s. A series of immensely popular German films based on revered German author Karl May's western novels featuring Old Shatterhand and Winnetou hit European theaters in 1962. And the first European western to have the same ingredients that would be claimed as their own by spaghetti westerns was The Savage Guns, a British-Spanish co-production released in 1962 starring Michael Carreras. But there's no doubt Sergio Leone defined the look and attitude of the spaghetti western starting with A Fistful of Dollars in 1964 and the two sequels For a Few Dollars More in 1965 and The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly in 1966. The Dollars Trilogy, as the films eventually became known, created a western wasteland filled with swirling dust, the whitewashed, crumbling hotels, saloons, and main streets of isolated towns, howling winds, scraggy dogs as starved as the peasant population, cynical heroes barely better than the always unshaven villains, and then there's the sun, an unrelenting blazing ball of suffocating heat bringing everything to the boiling point of grotesque violence. Something you want to take your grandma to see. <laughs> In a fistful of dollars, almost all of the tropes that would come to be associated with the genre and to establish it as a novel type of Western were present. The film opens with the hero, the man with no name, as iconically played by Clint Eastwood. He enters a town ruled by two outlaw gangs. The norms of traditional civilized society and social standards are non-existent. In some mysterious way, Leone establishes within his anonymous hero a sense that he's in command of everything around him. He has a plan. It may be a risky plan, but there is an assurance delivered through Eastwood's innate stoicism that he will always be faster, smarter, and deadlier than anyone he encounters. That's a great description. As a viewer, you are drawn in as the hero callously plays the two gangs, one against the other, in his own self-interest of financial gain. Leone ratchets up the tension with lingering close-ups and the almost antagonizing waits for the violence to explode. The only relief is in the impossibly macho lines of dialogue the hero delivers out of the side of his mouth around his ever-present black chair root. It isn't all about the money, however, as the hero uses his cunning and exceptional weapons skill to assist a family threatened by both gangs. But here's the thing. The hero isn't as in control as his behaviors would have us believe. Eventually, his betrayal is exposed and he is severely beaten. But as in any true American Western, the hero is tougher than the crucible of violence he is forced to endure. When he returns, he is not only deadlier than ever, but now he is pissed off as he decimates the gangs. The viewer's bloodlust also rises and is slaked. You have been reading the dictionary again, haven't you? Maybe. <laughs> this combination of cunning, irony, and pathos, the tricks, deceits, unexpected actions, and sarcasm of the hero, offset by the terror and brutality against defenseless people and against the hero after his double cross has been revealed, was the key element that would soon infect the hundreds of imitators that flooded cinemas after a fistful of dollars began to bring in handfuls and handfuls of lira. The problem, however, was as innovative and as stylistic as Leone was, he couldn't hide from the fact he was an original. 
Italian cinema was notorious for borrowing from other films without regard for infringements. While The Magnificent Seven acknowledged its debt to Akira Kawasawa's Seven Samurai and presumably paid cold hard cash for the right to remake it, Leone failed to even ask for permission before ripping off a fistful of dollars plot beat by beat from another of Kurosawa's other samurai films, Yojimbo. Leone eventually received a letter from Kurosawa congratulating him on making a very fine film, but it is my film. Consequently, Leone surrendered the Asian rights to Kurosawa plus 15% of the international box office proceeds. Leone did move on from borrowing his plots to create his own style and plots, which were then in turn often borrowed by others. Leone's films and other essential spaghetti westerns began to set themselves apart by demythologizing the tropes of traditional U.S. westerns. This was partly intentional and partly due to the context of a different cultural background. Most often, an American star was brought in to anchor the film. This not only gave the film a huge boost in the domestic marketplace, but more importantly, it ensured big profits from extensive distribution in the international marketplace. Clint Eastwood was the poster boy when it came to American actors who became stars by playing the hero or villain in spaghetti westerns. Eastwood was just short of literally being the man with no name when he left Rowdy Yates and Rawhide behind to take on the role in A Fistful of Dollars. He didn't much like the experience and didn't want to do the follow-up film for a few dollars more. But for quite a few dollars more, he decided he still had an appetite for Italian food. And after the third film in the trilogy, The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, Clint Eastwood was well on his way to becoming Clint Eastwood. Lee Van Cleef, who co-starred opposite Eastwood in the final two films in the Dollars trilogy as a dangerous rival bounty hunter named Colonel Mortimer, embraced the spaghetti western genre. He had made his film debut in High Noon, but was relegated to the role of a minor non-speaking outlaw when he refused to have his nose altered to play the much larger role as a sympathetic character for which he had been originally cast. His sinister features led him to being typecast for over a decade in roles as minor villains or menacing henchmen. After suffering serious injuries in a car crash, Van Cleef, whose minor star was already in the decline, fell into depression. When Sergio Leone offered him a major role in For a Few Dollars More, Van Cleef had no illusions about it reviving his acting career, signing on only because he needed the money. The success of the film led to the character and Van Cleef making a return in the massively successful The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. Suddenly, Van Cleef himself was a box office draw and an internationally recognized star. Knowing he was on to a good thing, Van Cleef stayed in Italy to star in another dozen spaghetti westerns, including his biggest turn as a deadly Sabata, a character who was very much an extension of his original spaghetti western character, Colonel Mortimer. Second-tier American actors, including John Saxon, Henry Silva, Jack Palance, and many others, none of whom spoke Italian, jumped onto the assembly line that was churning out hundreds of spaghetti westerns. The top-level American movie stars who turned their nose up at these raw foreign films were as surprised as anybody when they started losing roles in American films to these second-banana upstarts who had become international stars and were guarantees of profitable returns in foreign markets. As you mentioned, Rich, 
none of the American actors spoke Italian. But then almost all of the actors on these films spoke their own language. As a result, the same half-dozen American voiceover actors made a really good living dubbing almost all of the dialogue other than that which was spoken by the American stars. Because of the incredibly fast-paced production schedules, no effort was made to hide or even blend the dubbing into the final cut, which gave the films another distinctive characteristic that drove critics insane, but fans found hilarious and endearing. Language barriers on the set could also lead to delays, which simply were not allowed. To compensate, spaghetti westerns became more fixated on action and violence to tell the story in order to keep dialogue to a minimum. This eventually led to the films being constructed like Italian operas, where music and musical cues are used to carry the narrative. But this tendency toward ultraviolence caused more than a few spaghetti westerns to run into censorship problems requiring some major edits. Some had to be so severely edited they ended up verging on incoherence, and some were so impossibly violent they were still banned in certain markets even after the editing. Edited to the point verging on incoherence. Sounds like this show, doesn't it? <laughs> if a large enough budget was provided, Spain became the go-to location for filming of spaghetti westerns. For those films with smaller budgets, the Italian province of Lazio, basically the area surrounding Rome, was a favorite location. But spaghetti westerns were also shot in other locations where a budget could be stretched, such as the French Alps, North Africa, and even Israel. The indoor scenes were usually shot in the western towns built in the Roman studios like Cinceria or Ilios. The Ilios studio also had a Mexican town set built next to the western town soundstage. The second most influential and perhaps the most original director of spaghetti westerns was Sergio Corbucci. Wrapping his films in an atmosphere of pathos, he found a homegrown hero in Franco Nero, star of Corbucci's most influential film, Django. The film established Corbucci's career as well as launching Nero to international superstar status. And while American actors did dominate the heroic roles in spaghetti westerns, Franco Nero opened the door to other European actors. Director Giuliano Gemma's Ringo movies, A Pistol for Ringo and Return of Ringo, turned Ducio Tassari into the first Italian megastar of the genre. The fiery-tempered Gian Maria Volente acted in just a few spaghetti westerns, but his high-profile roles brought him worldwide recognition, playing Ramon Roja in A Fistful of Dollars, and then topping that as Al Indio in For a Few Dollars More. In Face to Face, he played a professor who discovers his violent instincts and then returned to the role of bandit leader as El Chuncho in A Bullet for the General. Directed by Damiano Damiani, A Bullet for the General began a trend in spaghetti westerns in which the storylines became leftist political statements. Filmed in Baroque style and set in Mexico, these films became known as Zapata westerns or tortilla westerns. Poverty and revolution were the focus of these films, which used any number of revolts in Mexico as a backdrop to promote the Marxist ideas fermenting in European and Mediterranean countries at the time. Being more sophisticated and intellectual than most of the traditional spaghetti westerns, the Zapatas were popular among radical intellectuals and students, but their politics also made them very popular among third world audiences. The best of the Zapatas is Sergio Corbucci's The Mercenary, with Franco Nero leading a revolution. 
Sabata and If You Meet Sartana, Pray for Your Death, you gotta love that title, both directed by Gianfranco Parolini, are both excellent examples of the betrayal theme beloved by spaghetti westerns. Both Lee Van Cleef and Yul Brenner appeared in the role as Sabata, while Sartana was played by Italian actor Gianni Garco. The Sartana films in particular maintain a strong cult following today among Spaghetti Western fans. The wronged hero who becomes an Avenger is another common Spaghetti Western theme. Among the more commercially successful films with a hero dedicated to vengeance, Once Upon a Time in the West is the best known, but there are others worth seeking out, such as Today We Kill, Tomorrow We Die, Death Rides a Horse, and Django Prepare a Coffin. Rich, Once Upon a Time in the West has to be considered Sergio Leone's magnum opus. I agree. It's my go-to recommendation for anyone who has never seen a spaghetti western and wants to know what all the fuss is about. It's not just the best of the spaghetti westerns. It is worthy of a spot in the pantheon of great westerns. It's epic, with its wide-open landscape, striking close-ups, and extraordinary music. This is Sergio Leone at the top of his game, pulling out all the stops, Shooting for the Moon, and any other cliches you might want to care to throw in. Unlike any other filmmaker, Sergio Leone was a master of working with extremes, using huge, empty frames smashed together with shocking close-ups, dark frames punctured by squares of light, and silence broken by squeals of astonishing music. The movie's nearly wordless 12-minute opening sequence featuring Western legends Woody Strode and Jack Elam is arguably Leone's finest moment, a moment all filmmakers could benefit from studying. Like in the other films he did with Sergio Leone, Ennio Morricone's music score is still the stuff of legend, beautiful, startling, and haunting. As the pinnacle of the spaghetti western genre, Once Upon a Time in the West rivals Sam Peckinpah's The Wild Bunch in its exploration of the bitter end of the Wild West and the onset of civilization. The theme works so effectively, it led to many critics declaring the end of the Western as a movie genre. Despite its genius, I will say the plot of Once Upon a Time in the West gets a bit convoluted, but that doesn't negate the pure, energized excellence that every frame of it offers. Having mentioned the partnership between director Sergio Leone and composer Ennio Marconi, I think the establishment of their creative partnership is the most significant event in the history of the Spaghetti Western. It was definitely a seminal moment. Without what resulted from the genius of their combined talents, I don't believe we would be talking about spaghetti westerns today as anything more than just a minor curiosity. Their collaboration spans multiple films, but it's Marconi's work on Leone's Dollars trilogy that has come to define the instantly identifiable sound of the spaghetti western in the public's imagination, at least. The score for A Fistful of Dollars reflects both Morricone's ingenuity and the production's small budget. In addition to harmonicas, bells, trumpets, and the new, at the time, Fender electric guitar, Morricone inserted whistling, bullwhips, and gunfire in an endlessly creative soundtrack. With a larger budget, Morricone was able to stretch a little on the good, the bad, and the ugly, but he still retained the original virtuosity of his approach to writing music. The main theme's iconic two-note opening trill, reminiscent of a coyote's howl, pops up many times in the film, acting as a sort of motif for each of the three main characters. For Clint Eastwood's Blondie, the notes are played on a flute. For Eli Wallach's Tuco, the ocarina. 
when Lee Van Cleef's angel eyes appears on the screen, the notes are performed by the human voice. Interestingly enough, all of these groundbreaking and massively acclaimed spaghetti western scores were often written for their respective films before production even started. In a 1987 interview, Sergio Leone said, Ennio Morricone writes the music to your films before you shoot them. From Ennio, I asked for themes that clothe my characters easily. He's never read a script of mine to compose the music, because many times he's composed the music before the script is ever written. I've always felt that music is more expressive than dialogue. I've always said that my best dialogue and screenwriter is Ennio Marconi. Thanks. Now I'm going to have a spaghetti western earworm for the rest of the day. You're welcome. As the audience for spaghetti westerns began to wane and look for something beyond the slapdash movie making into which the genre had descended, a last gasp short-term savior with gunside eyes and outrageous quickness rode into town. Comedy. In 1968, the wave of spaghetti westerns reached its crest, comprising one-third of the Italian film production, with over 70 spaghetti westerns being filmed that year. But in 1969, the popularity of the new genre abruptly collapsed, to the point where less than 20 new spaghetti westerns were completed. By 1970, the output of spaghetti westerns had been reduced to less than one-tenth of Italian film production. However, an injection of new life resurrected the genre with the considerable box office success of Enzio Barboni's They Call Me Trinity and its even more financially successful sequel, Trinity Is Still My Name. Suddenly, Italian filmmakers had a new model to exploit. In the Trinity films, the main characters were played by Terence Hill as Trinity, the deceptively quick but lazy hero, and Bud Spencer, a bear of a man, as Bambino, Trinity's big, strong, and irritable brother. Hill and Spencer, who had already cooperated as a heroic pair in the old-style spaghetti westerns God Forgives, I Don't, Boot Hill, and Ace High, all directed by Giuseppe Colisi. The natural humor of the actors had already surfaced in those movies in scenes of comedic fighting, but there was a chemistry between the two actors that ignited the screen. Audiences flocked to see the pair really turn loose their comedic chops, turning the second Trinity film, Trinity is Still My Name, into the highest-earning spaghetti western of all time. The film's stories satirized the diligent farmers, irascible cattle barons, and railroad magnates from American westerns and played them off against the spaghetti western-style bounty hunters. A wave of Trinity-inspired films followed, with quick and strong heroes, often called Trinity, or perhaps coming from a place called Trinity. Unlike the standard violence originally inherent in the genre, this new offshoot played everything for laughs, including a conceit of having few, if any, killings. To account for this, the original Trinity scripts contained religious pacifist characters to explain the absence of gunplay. As a result, all of the copycat successors contained religious groups or at least priests, sometimes as one of the heroes. The music for the two Trinity westerns also reflected the change in the films to a lighter and more sentimental mood, 
a style that, of course, was also adopted by the Trinity-inspired films. With good cause, most critics deplore the films that followed in the wake of the first two Trinity films, seeing them as a degeneration of the real spaghetti westerns. The problem was Hills and Spencer's skillful use of body language was a hard act to follow. And it is significant that the most successful of the post-Trinity films, such as A Man from the East and Two Partners and a Dupe, featured Hill in the leading role. Spencer also proved he could carry a film on his own back in It Can Be Done, Amigo. He was telling him right there, wasn't he? It can be done, amigo. It can be done, amigo. A pair of Hill and Spencer lookalikes had mild success in the film Carambola. While spaghetti western old hand Franco Nero also extended his career in the same subgenre with Cipolla Colt. And as a last hurrah in the two of the last spaghetti westerns, Sometimes Life is Hard, Right Providence? And Here We Go Again, A Providence? Tomas Millian plays a supernaturally quick bounty hunter modeled on Charlie Chaplin's Little Tramp character. Whoever came up with that idea, okay, you're going to be a gunfighter and you're going to be portraying Charlie Chaplin's Little Tramp. <laughs> okay, bizarre. High concept. Yeah. But in the traditional cycle of Italian filmmaking, in which a genre not only jumps a shark, as the saying goes, but then has the shark jump the whale and the whale jump over the moon with the cow and the spoon, the last of the films trying to capture the spark of the Trinity films quickly degenerated into burlesque comedies with little connection to the originality of the best of the spaghetti westerns. The other day when we were pulling together the information for this episode, you made an offhand comment that drop-kicked my meatballs into the leftover bolognese sauce. A colorful image, Rich, worthy of my own remarks, but I can't remember what I said. You said you had recently watched a baguette western. Yes, baguette westerns. The French sourdough ripoffs of the spaghetti western. I guess everybody needs some good crusty bread to complement their pasta. And Cemetery Without Crosses, featuring spaghetti western star Robert Hussein, is currently free on Prime. It's a dark and gritty meditation on revenge and how it destroys everyone it touches. Not a perfect film, but fun and beautiful to watch with another great Euro-Western theme song. Hussein, along with starring, also directed and co-wrote the screenplay, and delivers a worthy tribute to Leone and the Dollars trilogy, which was his intent. So are there any more baguette westerns worth watching? I can recommend Guns for San Sebastian with Anthony Quinn and Charles Bronson, and In the Dust of the Sun, a Euro-Western take on Hamlet. Sadly, both are hard to find these days. We've talked about some of the best of the spaghetti western genre and have given you some starting points beyond Sergio Leone and Clint Eastwood's Dollars trilogy. But there's always someone like our buddy Eric Compton from the Paperback Warrior podcast who wants to sample the worst a genre has to offer, a sort of hall of shame for spaghetti westerns. May I have the envelope, please? We're not even going to list the nominees. Why? There's only one. And the Ed Wood Award for the Worst Director of Spaghetti Western goes to Demiofilo Fidani for his Spaghetti Western opus, The Stranger, which is essentially the woman with no name with motorcycles instead of horses. Some people might argue Ed Wood's film Plan 9 from Outer Space is so bad it's good. So is that the case with The Stranger? Not a chance. The Stranger sucks so bad I should get a medal for sitting through it so you don't have to. 
There's the clanging of the Gelato Shop Triangle partner telling us to wrap this episode up with our shootouts and shoutouts. We'd like to give a shout out to Michael Haas, who is our go-to Six-Gun Justice deputy for all things Spaghetti Westerns. He has written extensively on the genre in the aptly named Spaghetti Westerns Volume 1 and Spaghetti Westerns Volume 2. He also edits the quarterly Spaghetti Western Digest. All of these are available from Amazon. As a companion piece to this episode, I'll be interviewing Michael in our next Six-Gun Justice Conversation segment. Thanks to Mike Bray and Wolfpack Publishing for being our premier sponsor. Thanks also to author Chris Enns and the Western Writers of America. Thanks to Roundup Magazine for their support in getting the word out about the Six-Gun Justice podcast. Thank you to our crew of Patreon backers for their financial support. If you're enjoying the podcast, please check out the Six-Gun Justice Patreon page at www.patreon.com backslash sixgunjustice and consider giving a small monthly stipend to help us keep moseying along. You can also make a one-time donation using the Patreon button at the top of the Six-Gun Justice website desktop version. If you can afford to slip a few wooden nickels in the cash box, rest assured it will go directly toward our monthly recording fees and our hosting fees, with any extra going into a fund for upgraded sound and recording equipment. Donations are appreciated, but clearly not expected or necessary. We're grateful for all our listeners and truly happy to have you sharing the trail ride with us. Next Monday, Paul will be hosting a Six-Gun Justice Speed Listen featuring everything you need to know about the Western TV series Lancer and the ongoing scandal in the world of Lancer fan fiction, all in under 15 minutes, give or take. And in two weeks, Rich and I will be back with episode 17 of the Six-Gun Justice podcast featuring all things Maverick. And don't forget to tune in to our Six-Gun Justice Conversations segments every Wednesday when either Paul or I get to hang out around the virtual Six-Gun Justice chuck wagon and chew the jerky with other Western wordslingers or friends who love the Western genre as much as we do. Until we meet again, be kind to each other, be kind to yourself, and be a light in the darkness. Adios for now. We're out of here. Let's ride. Join us in two weeks for another full-length episode of the Six-Gun Justice Podcast, sponsored by author Chris Enns, the Western Writers of America, and Wolfpack Publishing, publishers of such best-selling Western series as The Legend of the Black Rose and Concho.